Hey guys, uh, my name is Bam Natayo. Uh, so Glenn asked me to talk on the topic of loss because it's something that I've experienced. So uh, that's what we're going to do. Um, so here's the outline on what we're going to go over. So I'm going to talk about the losses of life we all experience. And then I'm going to use the Psalms as a template to address the losses we all go through. And then uh, I'll talk about what, do you, what you're supposed to do when your dream dies, when you experience loss, um, so that we will respond to it the way we need to. And then at the end, uh, hopefully we'll have time for Q&A. So. Okay, you know, loss is um, it's a simple four-letter word. Um, that is one of our common companions in life but we don't like to talk about it very often, especially in the culture we live in. Um, like a silent conspiracy, you know, we seem to have this unspoken agreement with others not to talk about our losses. So we like to suppress it and deny it and act like it doesn't exist. Um, but it's, it's a universal experience. It's something none of us can avoid. And uh, with every loss comes the potential for change, growth, new insights, understanding, and refinement. But these are things we'll experience in the future. Um, but in order for that to happen, we need to respond to it the right way. Um, and, but the problem is nobody likes to lose. I mean, life is supposed to be filled with winners, right? Um, I mean, look at the headlines on the sports page. Uh, we like to um, admire winners like, you know, Michael Jordan or Tom Brady. But we don't like to talk about losers uh, because losing hurts. It carries um, sharpened points that jab into our nerves and cause pain. So whether the loss is small or a large one, it doesn't matter. It's a loss. It hurts. Um, but it hurts even more because we have not been taught to expect or how to handle the losses of life. That's, that's what makes it even more difficult. We want to be winners. We want success. We want to be in control of our lives. Um, so we build walls around us with signs that say, losses, no trespassing. Then if loss occurs, what do we do? We feel violated. And let's talk about our typical response uh, to loss. Um, too often a person who has suffered a loss is blamed for it, especially in our culture. Um, when we see someone go through divorce, we say, he must not have been a good spouse or she must not have been a good wife. Or if we see a wayward child, we say, oh, that they failed as parents. Otherwise, that child would have stayed in the church and wouldn't have become involved with that crowd. We always have a reason to explain what happens. Or if someone loses a job, we say, I wonder what he did wrong. I wonder what his work ethic was like. Or if something bad happens to a family, we say, oh, if they had been living the Christian life, this wouldn't have happened. Um, or, you know, a natural disaster occurs and we say, oh, they should have known not to build their house in that area. So um, has anyone ever had those thoughts? We all do, right? But this attitude, this mindset we have, you know, it has existed since biblical times. It's nothing new. So um, 
And a perfect example would be John 9, 1 through 3, where the disciples expressed such thoughts to Jesus about a blind man. I mean, the moment they saw him, they said, I wonder what his parents did for him to deserve this. But oftentimes, there is no correlation between the two. So now let's look at the reality of losses. I mean, you all have experienced many losses in your life already. And the funny thing is, um, you may not even be aware of some of them, or you may not have realized that what you experienced were actually losses. I mean, some are in 24 hours, um, but others last for years. Um, so how you respond to them or what you let them do to you will affect the rest of your life. This is why this matters. I mean, you can't avoid loss or shrug it off. And the thing is, loss is not the enemy. It's not facing its existence. That's what the enemy is. But unfortunately, many of us have become more proficient in developing denial than we are in facing and accepting the losses of life. So, I mean, think about your life. Um, it's a blending of loss and gain. I mean, in creation, since the garden, you know, loss has been the ingredient of growth. Like, for example, you know, a bud is lost when it turns into a beautiful rose. Or when a plant pushes its way up through the soil, the seed is lost. Or when you were a child, your baby teeth came in after bouts of pain and crying, but one day... You know, they began to loose and wiggle and soon fell out or were pulled. They were lost to make room for the permanent teeth. Sometimes these two are lost and replaced with false teeth. <laughs> or think about your life um, in school. You know, graduating from high school produced a loss of status um, or friends or the familiarity. But most of us look forward to it. For it meant going on with our lives. That's, that's what that means. And then when we are young, some of our losses are celebrated as much as they are mourned. Most of these early losses are developmental and quite necessary. And we can accept them fairly and easily. But often we focus on the gain without remembering that there's usually some loss attached to it. So change involves... Um, some form of loss of the way things were at one time. In other words, you know, nothing stays consistent. Nothing stays the same. Okay, so now let's talk about the obvious ones, the obvious losses we, we are uh, aware of. Uh, loss can be obvious. So, for example, you know, a loved one is lost through death or divorce. Uh, that's exactly what happened to me five years ago. I was married for two years and my wife died in a car accident. Um, another loss would be divorce um, or a car is stolen or a house is vandalized and robbed or the flood waters of a hurricane come up to the second story of a house and even though the home is still standing, the damage is extensive. It's very much real. And then there are losses that are not so as obvious. Um, for example, changing jobs. People don't see it as a loss. Or receiving a B instead of an A in a college course that you worked so hard for. 
or getting less than hoped for in a raise, or moving to a new country, or as simple as moving to another state, or illness, the loss of health, or loss of youth. I mean, the list just keeps going on. All of these losses are very much apparent and around us, but they're not so obvious, so we're not aware of them. And because they may not be easy to recognize, we do not identify them as such. Therefore, we do not spend time and energy dealing with them. And then there's loss that comes with aging. Uh, as we get older, uh, we lose our youth or our natural beauty or our muscle tone. Uh, we lose our hair <laughs> or vision. Um, we don't have permanent teeth anymore. Um, and then as we get older, the frequency at which we lose our friends or relatives gradually increases. Or losing a job you've had for so many years, especially when that's all you know. And then you have a hard time finding another job because your skills are not in demand. Um, or people who lose a spouse in their older age have a much difficult time of uh, remarrying or finding someone. And then with that also comes identity loss and not mattering as much anymore. And then the most difficult losses of life are the threatened losses because the possibility of their occurring is real. Um, you are very much um, helpless and there's little you can do about it. So your sense of um, control is destroyed. So um, these are uh, some of the examples, you know, awaiting a biopsy outcome or a spouse saying to you, I'm thinking of divorcing you or a romantic interest that's not coming to fruition or being sued by angry employee or customer um, or you're in a foreign country on vacation and then you're all of a sudden held hostage and you don't know what's going to happen afterwards. Um, so all of the above are potential for losses they could occur and um, but because there's nothing you can do about it um, you feel completely hopeless. So what happens when we experience loss? So this is the perfect uh, graph honestly I found that it captures everything we go through um, because if you look at it I'm sure you guys can find a couple of things in there that you can relate to um, but the one that we focus on is the one in the middle denial but when you experience loss these are the natural reactions we all go through and the Bible is filled with these reactions as well whether it's sorrow or anxiety or anger or rejection, or rage, uh, or relief, or abandonment. I mean, and the problem is, you know, you don't experience them one at a time. They're all intertwined. That's, that's what makes it complex, and that one makes, that's what makes it difficult to put into words. But um, this is where the Bible comes to rescue. So right now, as you guys are aware, we're in the series of, uh, on the book of Psalms, and 
This is also the template that I'm going to use to deal with the losses of life. So the book of Psalms is divided into three categories. There are what's called the season of orientation. This is where your life is going according to plan. Everything is working out. So there are Psalms for that. And then two-thirds of the Psalms is called Psalms of disorientation. This is where your life is turned upside down and nothing makes sense. Uh, life doesn't make sense. And there are psalms for that. And then there's psalms of reorientation. This is where you go through the valley, you come out of it, and your situation hasn't necessarily changed, but your perspective has. And your outlook on life and the way you see God, the way you see loss is completely different. So that's what we're going to look at. So first, let's look at uh, seasons of orientation. Um, so these are the psalms that our Western culture is very comfortable with. These are the psalms of gratitude for God's ordering of life. These psalms reflect life the way it's expected to be, full of blessing for the saints. And um, this is where the Torah is celebrated and the God of creation is praised. These psalms are not only responsive, but generative. You know, they generate in part the reality they celebrate. And psalms of orientation speak of things like creation and wisdom and the favor of God. They are the songs of praise we sing when we experience God as reliable and trustworthy. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, who is um, a well-known Bible scholar, describes these psalms as Statements that describe a happy, blessed state in which the speakers are grateful for and confident in the abiding, reliable gifts of life that are long-standing from time past and will endure from time to time. Life as reflected in these psalms is not troubled or threatened, but it's seen as the well-ordered world intended by God. So here are the examples. So I listed some of the psalms that are considered um, psalms of orientation. And, and as you can see, each one celebrates God in one way or another. Here we see David totally oriented toward God. I mean, he's thinking clearly and full of worship and wonder at God in light of his creation. He not only knows who the maker is, he knows the maker himself. And his maker knows him too. And he's at peace in this beautiful world, knowing that, He's not just part of creation in general, but that he uniquely belongs to God. And he's humbled in light of this reality and worship pours from his mouth. So David is genuinely impressed with God. And so have you ever felt that way? Where, you know, your life is going according to plan and uh, everything is good. And yeah, so we have those seasons in life. And when we go through that, it's okay to use these Psalms to describe how we're, how we're feeling or what we're going through. But unfortunately, remaining oriented toward God is not our only experience as Christians. I mean, yeah, one day we'll be, but we're not there yet. But rather like the saints of the Old Testament, you know, we go through sometimes extended seasons of feeling totally disoriented in our relationship with God, uh, ourselves and um, the world around us. So Psalms of disorientation reflect on life when it's not working the way 
we intuitively think it should when the world doesn't make sense or when feels like God has nothing to say and he has totally abandoned us. And often they are recorded in the form of laments and, and um, complaints. These honest words of, you know, anger or hurt or depression or despair and deep questioning of God permeate the psalm. And the funny thing is, there are 150 chapters in the psalms and two-thirds are what's called the lament psalms, psalms of disorientation. So these psalms are the reaction of the faithful to God when the world they knew was broken. So this is what their way of saying, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not the original plan. Things are out of whack. Things are broken. So we want you to come and do something about it. We want you to fix it. And these are psalms of lament that move and deepen the faith of the worshiper. Like, for example, you know, when Jerusalem, the city of God, falls to Babylon, you don't sing Psalm 23. It just doesn't make sense, you know? So you use the psalm that goes with the season you're in. You respond with Psalm 137. So whether the content is ethically pure or not, the words reflect the pain of a people engaging with their God in world-shattering circumstances, meaning those losses that I was listing earlier. Again, so here are some examples of psalms of disorientation. So the thing is, you know, feeling disoriented can go for hours, days, weeks, months, and sometimes for years. So this is when you guys need to ponder what has caused disorientation in your life. When did God stop making sense to you? When did your faith start to wither up? Because disorientation can happen in valleys or on mountaintops. So ask questions such as, did tragedy strike your life and thus faith went through a whirlwind? Or did you succeed at something and forgot all about God? Are you expressing yourself to God in heartfelt, honest prayer? Or are you tempted to smother your true feelings because you think God is disinterested or annoyed by your complaints? Because it has to do with the mindset which come from your understanding of the book of Psalms. Did you buy into that fake it until you make it nonsense, you know, that flies in our culture? So these are the questions we want to wrestle with. And then there, there are, there's a season called season of reorientation or new orientation. And there are psalms for that. These are deeper versions of the orientation psalms. Disorientation is now past and the singer praises God for salvation. So this category includes the victory hymns of Yahweh. Or if you think this is just in the book of Psalms, um, Read Exodus 15, which is Miriam's song, which she sang, you know, after the victory Israel ex experienced. So these psalms express thanksgiving for the faithfulness and deliverance of God through a difficult time of crisis and despair so that joy and blessing are part of life again. So God has been faithful to bring a person through the difficulty of life 
and the person responds with thanksgiving. Another example I can think of would be Book of Job. Uh, so most of the Book of Job is what's described as disorientation. But then when you get to chapter 42, this is where he's reoriented and then he says about God, now I have a whole new understanding of who you are. You are beyond measure. Uh, I cannot put you into words. Meaning he goes through the valley. He gives voice to his pain. But then when he comes out, he has a whole new perspective on God and on life. Uh, here are some examples on uh, Psalms of reorientation. So, um, for example, you know, Miriam's song in Exodus 15, although not part of the book of Psalms, is a really good example. We see the joy um, in his soul as he emerges from the fog and he has clarity again. His heart and mind are filled with praise and gratitude that God came through. In other words, God made a way. Just when things got their darkest, God's grace burst onto the scene in brilliant light. Again, you know, ask yourself, have you ever been there? What was that experience like for you? Who did you celebrate with? What kind of images come to mind when you think of new orientation? What kind of language would you use to describe your experience of being oriented, reoriented? So now that we have that template to work off of, you know, um, so the question you want to ask is, what do you do when your dream dies? Because it's, it's a matter of when, not if. And again, since we're talking about Book of Psalms, I'm going to use the life of David, from whom I've learned some key lessons on how to respond to loss. And so the section I'm going to use is uh, 2 Samuel 7. So to give you a quick background, this is where... So David was anointed to become the next king of Israel. He was uh, 15 years old at the time, but then it wasn't until 18 years later that he actually took the throne. So during those 18 years, he, the Bible says he was running for his life from Saul day in and day out. So he would go from one cave to another. He would hide from one city to another. But then one day, Saul and his sons die in a battle, and then God says to him, okay, now is the time to take the throne. But then as soon as he goes into the palace, the Bible says he started thinking about the Ark of the Covenant, and he started saying, okay, I'm living in a palace but the Ark of the Covenant doesn't have a house. I want to build a house for the Ark. So a dream is born. That, he wanted that to be the defining moment of his life. But then God appears to Nathan and he tells him that he should go and talk to David. So David tells Nathan this dream he has. And then Nathan says to him, son, do whatever is in your heart. If that's what God put in your heart, go for it. So David gets excited. You know, he starts meeting with architects and engineers, and he's about to put together the plan and, and to work on it. But then God appears to Nathan and says to him, okay, you need to tell him that he's not the one who's going to build the house for me. And that's when his dream gets shattered. So, I mean, it goes from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. 
So now what I want to focus on is how he responded to that loss he experienced. Okay. So if you want to see where the dream dies, it's uh, same chapter, uh, verses 4 through 17. So now the question is, so what do you do when your dream dies? What do you do when you experience loss? So the first thing David, so the first lesson is review what you have. Review your life apart from the dream. So David gets devastated, but then he starts remembering his life up to that moment when the dream was shattered. So he started thinking about how when he was little and he was looking after his sheep, God would protect him from lions and bears. And then he faces Goliath one day, and then God puts him on a national stage and he gives him victory. And then God anoints him to be the next king of Israel. So he was able to say, oh, God has been with me throughout my life. So I'm not going to define my life based on this one dream that got shattered. So just like that, you know, I was reviewing my life and how growing up, you know, I grew up in a strong Christian family and how God provided for me. And then he gave us an opportunity to come to, to come to the U.S. and get good education. And I continued to grow in my walk with him. And then, you know, surprisingly, God brought my late wife into my life in ways I didn't expect. You know, I met her at a soccer event in Dallas, and we had a really good two years. So when I reviewed my life up, up to that day, you know, when the accident happened, I was also able to say, oh, God has been with me throughout my life. Because sometimes when you experience loss, so easy to have that tunnel vision and not see the hand of God throughout your life. And then the second uh, lesson is to reject introspection. So what is your natural response uh, when there's a loss? You start asking questions. You want to know why, which is absolutely okay. Like I said, two-thirds of the Psalms, that's exactly what they do. You know, like sometimes people say, you're not supposed to ask God why. You're not supposed to question. Because they see questioning as a lack of faith. But in fact, it's proof of real bold faith. Because... If you don't think God can do something about it, you're not going to ask him to begin with. You're going to think he's very limited in what he can do, right? So it's absolutely okay and encouraged to ask why. And when you ask, one of two things happen. So sometimes you find out that there's a direct correlation between what happened and your part in it, which is exactly what happened with David. So he immediately asked God why. But God chose not to reveal it at the time because David was not ready to hear it. But when you read in Second um, Chronicles, God finally reveals it to him and he tells him, you shed innocent blood. You took the life of Uriah. Because of that, you're not going to be the one to build it. So sometimes there's a direct correlation between the loss and our part. But 90% of the time, there is no relationship. There is no correlation. So, and once we are clear on that, we don't want to try to figure things out because what's, what it's going to do is it's going to keep us from growing in our walk with God. You know, that's all we're going to be wrapped up with and your mind is going to go crazy. So, 
um, that's when we need to reject introspection. And then the third thing is we need to resolve to keep dreaming. So as soon as David's dream got shattered, the Bible says, you know, he started focusing on what else God wanted to do in his life. So if you look at the rest of his life from that point on, he continued to accomplish other things for God. So the key lesson here is, you know, just because your dream dies or you experience loss doesn't mean God doesn't have other dreams for you. In other words, you know, you would not be here if God didn't have plans for your life. So in David's case, he could have easily, you know, checked out and said, okay, this is what I wanted to do with my life and I'm not the one. So I'm just going to, you know, ride into the sunset. No, the Bible says till the day he died, you know, he was accomplishing things for, for God. So, you know, in my case, honestly, that day when the accident happened, I didn't just lose a spouse like I lost so many things that I was looking forward to and it happened when I was so young but God was saying to me I'm not finished with you yet you know I have other plans for you like I've never thought of talking on the topic of loss and grief at this age you know but God was teaching me about lament and loss and because it's such a universal experience and now I can relate to so many people because of my experience. And I mean, I'm not saying that happened so that, you know, I can do this, but because of the way God helped me to respond to it, now I'm in a position to use it for something good. Because, you know, sometimes people say, oh yeah, there's a direct correlation. Okay, you became this because of that. And the part that I want to show them is the life of Joseph. You know, his brother sold him into Egypt and because they didn't like him, you know, they were jealous that the Bible says God was with him. And he became a prime minister. And then one day they come to buy food from him. And when he saw them, you know, he did not say, thank you so much for selling me to Egypt. Actually, he said, what you guys did was evil, but God meant it for good. So, you know, whatever good that comes out of that, out of the loss, it will not be because of it. it. It's in spite of it. So we need to have that, you know, biblical perspective on loss. Because sometimes we try to explain what has not been revealed. We try to make sense out of things because we want to be in control. And uh, so in David's case, you know, he resolved to keep dreaming. And slowly but surely, you know, God helped me to do the same. And then the fourth thing is uh, to redirect your energy. So when David was told that he's not the one who's going to build the house, he asked God, so who is it going to be? And God said to him, oh, it's actually going to be your son, Solomon. But Solomon was 16 years old at the time. So what did David do? He started focusing on preparing Solomon to build the house. So if you read... First Chronicles 29, the entire chapter, it shows you like all the work David did to prepare his son. Like the Bible says, he prepared all the material, the design, the architecture. And then he meets with the elders and he tells them, okay, my son is not ready to do this. But when he is, here is everything he needs. And the Bible says, you know, when the time came for Solomon, 
to build it, it was the easiest job because everything was done. Everything was ready. And um, I remember, like in my case, uh, prior to even meeting my wife at the time, I was very passionate about mentoring and one-on-one uh, -on -one discipleship and, and uh, even marriage counseling. That's what I was passionate about. And but then that day, you know, when the accident happened, God was, in a sense, saying to me, okay, hold that thought. Now I'm going to have you focus on loss and grief. So these past five years, that's where I poured my heart into. And I've learned so much on what it's like to go through the valley, what it's like when God is silent, what it's like uh, when your dream dies, and, and, and what it's like to live your life with unanswered prayers and shattered dreams. And, um, and because of that, he's given me so many opportunities now to walk this journey with uh, so many people out there who are experiencing it. And because of it, you know, now I'm in a position to minister to people that I've never thought of doing this before. So, um, you know, when loss happens to you and you're not expecting it, you're not planning on it, and your life changes its course, be willing to redirect your energy into whatever you're embarking on because you know you never know what is going to come out of it you never know what god is going to teach you or what you're going to become because of that journey and uh, so in david's case he all of a sudden found himself preparing his son to build i mean just think about the kind of humility required for him to do that <laughs> because Here's a teenager, you know, who has no idea what he would be doing in the future. And David is doing all the legwork for him. But even then, you know, David didn't complain. And uh, he was happy. He was pleased. And because of that, God honored his life. And um, so same thing is going to happen to us, you know, because this is, like I said, um, universal experience. So, um, and then... Here are some resources um, that really helped me get a good understanding of Psalms. Because uh, now I use Psalms to uh, voice the season that I'm going through. And uh, so I, you guys will find these very beneficial. And uh, you'll never see the book of Psalms the same way um, once you spend time in it. Because your life journey is going to force you. Um, to have to deal with those. Okay, any questions, comments? So your question is how my perspective changed since I've experienced loss. Okay, yeah, so like I told you, I grew up in a conservative Christian family and all my life I was taught if you live your life according to God's will, if you obey the word of God, if you pray, if you serve him, good things will happen to you. So that was my framework. And so throughout my life, that's exactly what I did. And, you know, God brings this godly woman to my life. And then we do things according to his will. Like, you know, Pastor Glenn was the one who did our premarital counseling. And then he did our wedding and then I even asked him, like, if we can meet with him once a month for accountability. So we were doing it the right way. And then 
that accident happens. So all of a sudden now, my faith is being questioned. You know, I am questioning everything I believed. I literally went to my parents and said, okay, this is what you told me, this, what, this is what happened. So explain that. And they didn't know what to say. So, for example, you know, one thing I've learned from this journey is that you can live your life according to God's word. You can be following him with all your heart and the worst things can still happen to you. So I will never tell someone, if you do A and B, C will happen. No, it does not. Life does not work like that. But no matter what you're going to go through, God is going to be there for you. Then I've also learned that sometimes God chooses not to respond to you. He I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Silence. I mean, it really does a good job of showing when God is silent. It's about these two missionaries who go to Asia. It was um, in the 40s, and uh, they are trying to advance the gospel. But once they get there, all they're experiencing is resistance and persecution and suffering, and they're seeing death, and they're crying out to God, and God is silent. And they're saying, Am I just praying to myself? Am I praying to silence? Or are you, are you there, God? You know, are you near me? And honestly, these past five years, like, that's, that's one thing I have to deal with. So, you know, people say, God is always near. You know, he will always respond. Yeah, he is always near. But sometimes he doesn't respond the way you want him to. He wants you to experience his presence in silence, you know. And... Um, and then I've also learned that the losses you experience, the sufferings you go through, it has nothing to do with you. Some people who deserve to be punished end up having easy life. Some people who need to be blessed experience one loss after another after another. So loss has nothing to do with fairness. I mean, I can, you know, give you a lot of examples, but yeah, it definitely changed my outlook on life. And, um, oh, I've also learned that tomorrow is not promised. You know, people say, I'm young, I'm healthy, I have my whole life ahead of me, but it's not promised. So ever since that day for me, you know, when I wake up in the morning, just became about the day. You know, I don't plan for next week. I don't plan for next month or for next year because today is all I have. And it really helps you to be focused and, and live your life with purpose. Because, you know, my wife was 31, very healthy, serving God. And then actually that day when the accident happened, she was on her way to this family's house to take the kids to YMCA, you know. So, and this happened to her and the couple who hit her, you know, they're in their 60s and nothing happened to them. So how do you explain that, you know? So, um, yeah, I think some of the lessons you learn are things you wouldn't learn any other way. But at the same time, what makes it difficult is, you know, I would say to God during that disorientation season I didn't ask for this God you know I didn't audition for it and I had no say in it either it's one thing if I said yeah I'm willing to go through that you know and um, now I'm the one who's left behind who's having to deal with it you know and then all the things people say to you 
that are not biblical. That's another thing I've learned. You learn to filter out what is good from what is bad. Like, so people would say to me, for example, oh, you know, you're very strong. You know, God doesn't give you beyond what you can handle. That verse has to do with temptation. It has nothing to do with suffering. So, you know, people like to take things out of context. It's because they don't know what to say. But most of the time, the best thing to say is to not say anything. Just practice the art of presence, you know? Because actually the right thing to say is, oh, I can't imagine what you're going through, but I want to be there for you. I want to pray for you. I want to cry with you. I want to walk this journey with you. Just like Job's friends, you know, what they did in the beginning. The Bible says they came to see him and they saw that he was in such deep grief that they didn't say a word for seven days. But then they opened their mouths, you know. So most of the time, you know, the best thing to say is not say much. And just by your presence, though, you know, that person is going to be encouraged. And, and, and God will show you what to do and what not to do. If you're willing to let him flow through you, as opposed to you trying to figure it out. Did I answer your question? Okay. Yes. How do I know that God has completed the healing process for me? Okay, that's a really good question. So, um, so like I told you, for me, the season of disorientation was from 2012 until 2016. So I remember when 2017 started, all of a sudden, I started having this new sense of hope. I remember 22... 2012 through 2016, honestly, I couldn't see past the next hour, the next minute. Sometimes I can only do it like one second at a time. But, you know, you keep going through it and you keep asking for God's grace to sustain you through it. But slowly but surely you learn to be content in your situation. So, like, for example, in my situation... I didn't ask him to get me out of it quickly or to bring someone else into my life because that's a quick fix, you know. I said, okay, God, you've allowed this to happen now. I want to learn everything there is to learn. I want to use it for something good, so help me. So honestly, slowly but surely, his grace will help you to integrate it into your life. So what that means is, so what healing looks like for me is, you are comfortable talking about it. So like people would say to me, normally, you know, when people come to see me, they don't want to bring it up. It's like the elephant in the room. But for me, if you don't talk about it, then it means you haven't healed. So actually, I am the one who brings up the topic and I would talk about it. You know, like, for example, you know, when people come to visit me at my house, they don't even want to look at her picture because they think that if I catch them looking at the picture, it's going to trigger my pain. But I actually confronted them saying, why do you act like she didn't exist? You know, why she was part of my life. Actually, what helps me is when you tell me things you remember about her. And they were surprised. So you have to be able to face it 
integrate it into your life and talk about it because you know it's not the only thing that defines you like in my case i remember one time i confronted evan like evan said to me hey bumni you're the expert on grief and i told him no okay you're trying to pigeonhole me into one thing you know there's more to me than that he's like oh yeah i'm like yeah you know <laughs> and 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 i showed him like what other things happen in my life and he was surprised you know but if you haven't processed it though honestly that's all you look at you know and and then the other thing is you're able to use your experience to minister to others so people who haven't experienced healing they respond the same way to another person like you know i've run into people who have experienced loss but because they haven't processed their own loss they responded the same way to me like i i ran into this man you know who lost his spouse and then when i spent time with him he doesn't want to talk about it so i asked him why don't you bring it up he said oh i'm very uncomfortable uncomfortable you know so i said so okay that tells me that you haven't processed your own loss he said nope i have not so he's doing the same thing to me you know he's avoiding the topic and instead of being a source of comfort and encouragement he's actually not helping me at all so and then another way you know that you're experiencing healing is you have a whole new outlook on life i remember for those 4 years i kept saying to god how am i going to live the rest of my life having to deal with this because i'm so young you know like i told him god if this happened when i was in my 60s or 70s i can easily say like billy graham you know when his wife passed away 10 years ago he said oh i have maybe 10 15 years left then soon i'm going to see her again versus you know i was um 34 when it happened so i'm saying okay god how am i going to live the next 30 40 years cuz that's such a long time you know cuz when you're having an awesome time with your spouse and when your marriage is going well 20 years feels like 20 weeks right but then when you're going through the valley when you're going through darkness though each day feels like a thousand years so i said to god how am i going to get through this but you know at the beginning of 2017 all of a sudden i started having this new sense of hope about what lies ahead i couldn't explain it you know i couldn't tell you why but god is saying to me now you're coming out of the valley and now i have something new in your life so god started showing me that this is a new chapter in my life and that what i went through these past 5 years is the darkest chapter of my life so instead of seeing it as you know one huge thing i started seeing it as uh something really dark that's part of something really good in my life you know so that's what healing look like because normally people associate healing with you remarrying i know so many people who have gone through this try to remarry right away thinking it would help them get out of the loneliness and the pain and the suffering and now they're in a bad bad relationship because that person is not going to heal you only god can in fact for me you know remarrying should be because you've healed not trying to find healing and i tell people you don't have to remarry to say you've healed because i know people who have gone through this they haven't remarried but now they use their experience to minister to other people so even the way we look at healing has to be 
biblical, you know. So in David's case, you know, he comes out from the valley, his situation hasn't changed. It's not like God changed his mind and said, oh, now I changed my mind, you know, you're the one who's going to build it. Nope. But his perspective did. And so that's what true healing looks like. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. So what you just talked about is something we covered at the beginning, all the different ways we experience loss. In fact, the verse that you talked about was something that I really had to wrestle with because, you know, like it says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. So if your heart is pure, yes, you will see God. But it says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. So, so what I've learned is, you're not blessed because you're mourning. You're blessed because you belong to God and he's going to comfort you. Because a non-believer also mourns, but they don't get comforted, you know. So, but the difference is if you have a relationship with God, uh, he's going to be there. So like, you know, one thing I've learned these past five years is I've learned the side of Jesus that I've never seen before. You know, normally if you go to a Christian bookstore and you look at the paintings of Jesus you know they paint him as someone really handsome right smiling happy but the Bible says he was not like that the Bible says Jesus was a man of sorrows familiar with our deepest grief the Bible says he was not even good-looking to begin with in fact when they came to arrest him the Bible says they needed Judas to point him out that's how much he was like everyone else so when I was grieving, you know, these past five years, he would show me that he's literally taking the brunt of what I was going through. He doesn't just look at you and feel sorry for you or try to comfort you. No, he comes and he literally weeps, you know. I mean, one good example I can give you is when they told him that Lazarus died. You know, the Bible says he came four days later. He could have easily said to them, oh, don't grieve, because the Bible says they were weeping and grieving. He could have easily said, oh, don't cry. I'm about to raise him up in five minutes. No. Jesus lived in the moment. The Bible says Jesus wept. Like, I can't tell you how much that meant to me, because in my case, I don't know when I'm going to see her again, you know. It might be 30 years from now, you know. It might be a long time, right? But... Jesus lives in the moment, so it's okay for me to cry. It's okay, because, you know, grief is the price we pay for love. That's what that is. Actually, the depth of your sorrow shows the depth of your love. That's, that's what that is. So and then people say, you know, don't cry. You need to man up. I mean, tears are a language of grief. So like, for example, you know, in the book of Psalms, it says, David says, you have stored my tears in a bottle. Every cry, every sigh, every unspoken words. In other words, God keep, keeps track of our grief, our lament, and he does something with it. He doesn't just respond. You know, he does something with it. You know, he doesn't ignore it. You know, so actually... The fact that you're crying shows strength, not weakness. And then doctors say there's a physiological benefit to crying because our tears have stress-relieving hormones. Have you noticed like after you cry, 
you feel better, right? Because you're letting the stress out. But the culture we live in, we're told to buck up, suppress it, you know, to figure it out on your own. No wonder people are struggling with, you know, pills and suicidal thoughts because the grief will find a way to come out. It will not be denied. So the sooner you respond to it the right way, the better off you'll be in the long run. Yes, ma'am. Yeah that's, yeah, that's a really good question. So how do you balance between processing it versus doing what you're expected to do, right? Okay, so the first thing I would say is you can't put a calendar on the losses you experience. Like, you know, people have said to me, it's been three years. Uh, are you still grieving? Are you still struggling with it? So, you know, one of the roles you're going to play is you're going to find yourself coaching people how to minister to you. Because most of the time they have good intentions, but they don't know what to say or what to do. So, like, for example, you know, in situations like that where you said, oh, it's still two years, three years. Honestly, you can't put a deadline on it. Because, for example, you know, losing a spouse or losing a child, they say, is like getting amputated. When someone goes to war and gets amputated, now they come back and they will put on prosthetic because they're trying to perform the way they used to. Yeah, they can pick things up. Yeah, they can walk. But I can tell you there's not a day that goes by they don't miss what they've lost or they, they have what's called phantom pain. So, so in my case, you know, when people say that to me, I tell them, oh, so do you say to an amputee, oh, it's been three years. Are you grabbing things better or are you walking better? No, you don't. You learn to adapt. You learn to adjust to your new reality. So, but the moment you say, oh, it's been three years or it's been seven years, you're putting expectation on that person. It really shows ignorance. That's what that is, you know? And then like I showed earlier, some losses, you recover quickly, you know? Just like she said, you know, she lost her car key. The moment she finds it, that's it. But each loss needs to be treated individually. Another thing I've learned is you should never ever compare two losses. Like people would say to me, oh, I know what you're going through. Uh, my cat died. Or I lost my grandparents. Because the, the, the reason why you should never do that is because you do one of two things. You will either give more weight to what you're going through or you minimize someone else's loss. So when, you know, when people say to me, oh, Bamni, you know, I've been having a really bad week, you know, I just lost my job or I'm about to move to another state. But what I'm going through cannot be compared to yours. I stopped them right there. I said, nope, do not compare yours with mine because I really want to honor yours. Let's just talk about yours for now, you know. And then another thing people do is, if they haven't experienced what you're going through, they immediately exclude themselves from being used by God to minister to you. I mean, the Bible says, comfort one another, carry each other's burdens. So you don't have to relate to someone to minister to them. Like I said, 
you minister to them by your presence and, and by walking this journey with them. But the culture we live in, the mindset is that, oh, you need to go see a grief counselor or you need to go see Pastor Glenn, you know? You, need, you, you know, we like categorize it, right? And uh, so, but you miss out on an opportunity not only to learn for yourself, but to minister to others. So would you say, it all comes down to Yes. Yes. If I need space, I need to ask for that Absolutely. If I need to cry, if I need to say, look, I can't work today, I just need to. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. So. Just ask for it. Yeah. Whether it's given freely or not, yes. it's, you know, I'm doing the work. Yeah. So, you know, in biblical times, they used to grieve in a, such a healthy way. So, like, for example, you know, I can give you many examples. Like, for example, when Saul died, the Bible says David made sure that they grieved for 70 days. The Bible says they wept for him for 70 days. So compare that to the culture we live in where you go to a funeral or you might get a week off. And then now you're expected to come back to work and perform like the way you did. That's not biblical. That's not healthy. So now we're living in a time where you really have to fight for it. So in, in my case, when after the accident, you know, because it was so unexpected and catastrophic, which adds to, you know, the level, I took a month off. And, and not only that, you know, I had to take her, her remains to be buried to honor her parents' wishes. And then I remember I came back. That's actually when I started grieving. You know, d during that one month, I couldn't because I would have 20, 30 people at my house every day and I'm about to lose my mind. So what I would do is I would tell them, sorry, now I have to leave the house and then I'll come back later. You can't expect them to figure things out for you. Or sometimes people would call me and say, we're on our way to see you. We're coming from Denver. And I tell them, nope, make a U-turn. Because right now I'm having a panic attack and I really can't see you. This is the worst time. I have to prepare ahead of time. See, like you have to coach people. Or sometimes I'm at work and then all of a sudden something would trigger it and I start crying. I would tell my coworkers to leave me alone. Like, can you leave me alone for today? Or there are days, all I want to do is talk about it. So I would ask them and say, hey, can we go on a walk? And we would just cry together, or they would pray for me, or I would tell them what I'm going through. Because all these things, you know, that you're asking, honestly, it's, it's, it's in the Bible. We just don't see it. Like, for example, you know, there were times I would have, like, really, really rough week, like where every day is so dark, so, like, I would barely get through that day somehow. And then I would come home, but I can't sleep at night. So imagine what that's like. But then I would read in the book of Job, him going through that, where he says, you torment me throughout the day in thoughts. And then at night I go to my bed and I can't sleep. So, you know, I read that and I'm 
comforted because it shows me that I'm not the only one who's going through that, you know? Or I would ask God, can you, like, show me what you're up to? Because, you know, like, my eyes are red from crying, and you can't even pray sometimes, you know? And then you read in the Bible, so many people can relate to that, Jeremiah in Lamentations, you know? He cries out to God that God would not respond. Or David says, my eyes are red from crying. My spirit is broken. My flesh is weak. All of a sudden you find out that what Job went through is common. You know, sometimes we try to put him as if someone no one can relate to. Oh no, I can, I can show you people that have been through much, much worse situations, you know. But it just shows you that we're universal. So you have to be able to coach people, you know what's good for you and what's not, you know? And uh, yes, yes. Most of the time, okay, one thing I would say about giving people space is you don't want to assume that's what they need. Like sometimes people would say to me, oh, I haven't talked to you for 12 months because I wanted to give you space. That was hurtful. I actually had a coworker who came to my wedding we even went to his house one day for dinner, you know, so he knows me, he knows her, and I work with him, and, but ever since the accident, you know, he would avoid me, you know, like I would see him in the hallway, he would not say a word to me, or sometimes if he sees me, he would say, hey, um, I'm going to have you for dinner, and I would say, sure, but it would never happen, okay, and then, uh, like, recently, I found out that he's about to retire. So I wanted to meet with him and talk to him because I didn't want another person to experience what I was experiencing. I wanted it to end with me. See, sometimes unintentionally we enable people to do unhealthy things by not speaking up, you know. So I was going to talk to him, but I never got the opportunity, so he retired. But God put it in my heart to write him a letter. I just couldn't get it, get it out of my head. So one day I sat down and like honestly, like within 10, 15 minutes, I wrote him a four letter, a four page letter saying, you know, what a biblical uh, lament looks like and how to minister to someone. And I gave it to uh, another person who goes to the same church as him. So I prayed over it, I gave it to him. And then a week later, he sends me a text saying, I just read your letter and he said, it is exactly what I needed. He said, I have been avoiding my own loss, so I couldn't deal with yours. In fact, can we get together and talk about it? I said, sure. So they invited me over to their house for dinner. Honestly, like we met for four hours. And he said, God was dealing with him. And then he even said to me, thank you for the grace in which you've showed me. Because, you know, I wasn't like, criticizing him or putting him down I was saying hey Dave here's a biblical way to deal with this you know I knew there was a reason behind that why he was avoiding me you know so now you know he's gonna go and teach others to do the same thing so like in other words like today my goal was for you guys to have that biblical understanding so that when you come across someone who's going through loss or when you're processing your own that you respond to it the right way you know because this is not something for the select few, no. This is for all of us.
Yes. It's kind of a twofold question. So okay. In her case, as an employer, would you suggest that she communicate with that employee and say, tell me what you need? Because if the, yes. the woman doesn't know how to advocate for herself. Absolutely. Yeah, sometimes the person doesn't know how to process their own loss, so you might be in a position to give them guidance. If it's someone, you know, who's able to process it on their own, then it makes it so much easier. But sometimes, yeah, you're right. They don't even know what to do or what not to do. But that gives you a really good opportunity to be a source of hope and comfort and guidance. Yes. This is how I process my losses, and that's how I process yes. their losses. And say, okay, I'm going to give them space because that's what I needed. Yes. But to use my voice again to ask them what they need. Absolutely. And of course, covering the whole thing in prayer, you know, the spirit yeah. in the conversation, things like that. And so that's really helpful. Absolutely. And then, you know, like the culture we live in, we talk about personal space. So you have to look at it in a biblical context. Honestly, when it comes to processing your grief, no one can do it for you. Yes, you're going to have to do it, but you don't go through that alone, though. That's what I'm saying. Sometimes we think we can figure it out on our own. No, we're supposed to do that in a community because there are times I wouldn't be where I am today if it had not been for key individuals in my life who were there for me, you know? And, and then the other thing is, you know, people have different roles in your life. So some people's role is to be firefighters. So like, you know, when, when a house burns down, who are the first people to come? Firefighters, right? They put out the fire, but you'll never see them again. Sort of like some people, when you experience loss, they come and they're there for you for a week or so but then you'll never see them again. And then there are, what comes out after the firefighters is the builders. They come, they take assessment of the damage, and then they are there for weeks and months until it's rebuilt back up, right? There are people who are like that in your life. You know, they're gonna help you rebuild your life. I mean, they've been there for me these past five years, you know? So whatever role that God wants you to play in, So a person whose gift is a firefighter, you expect him to be like a builder, you're going to be disappointed. And then the builder, if he doesn't show up in the first couple of weeks or months, you're going to be upset. But no, they're going to be there. They're waiting for the right time. Yes, sir. Maybe talk more about like how to encourage others to come around someone who's going through a loss. Experience I had with my dad, he'd uh, been out of the job for like 11 months and then went through this interview process, like six interviews, thought he was going to get the job and didn't, he just crushed. And I called like his brother and I was like, well, I just don't know what to say. I'm like, what? You know, I was kind of upset with him. Then I called his cousin and his cousin's like, oh man, I'll get off that. I'll call my dad. Like, so it was a little frustrating for me. Like, Absolutely. why don't you just enter in and be with my dad? Yes. So maybe talk to like, how do you, maybe have some grace for people like you're saying, yes. especially when they firefighter. So how do you show others 
on how to come alongside someone who's going through loss. Yeah, so I've had I've had that experience uh, on so many occasions. Like, so one example I can give you is um, about three years ago. There's this lady that I worked with, and her daughter went to a birthday party. It was actually on the news. Um, her name is Tina Pacheco. Her daughter went to a birthday party, tried on this drug, ended up being poisoned, and she died like within 24 hours. She was 17 years old, had a bright future. Like, we were all devastated and shocked. So now we're about to go to her memorial, and my coworkers are saying to me, I don't know if I'm going to go because I'm not going to know what to say. So can we go with you? And I'm saying to them, I don't have anything to say either. So all she needs is your presence. So I said, okay, I'm going to take this opportunity to show them what it's like. So they said, they insisted on going with me. So we go to the memorial. They wanted me to lead the way. And, you know, I walked up to her. I hugged her and I just cried. And they're waiting for me to see if I'm going to say the right thing. What do you say? There's nothing to say. But once they saw how I reacted, it made it easy for them to show emotions and, and to just be there. So honestly, most of the time, the best way to do it is by demonstrating it yourself. Yes, you can give people pointers here and there, but you know everyone is watching your life. So sometimes, yeah, it's so frustrating because you know what's obvious and what's common sense doesn't come because of culture we live in, right? I mean, but. The more they see you demonstrate it and the more you live it out, the easier it becomes. So in my case, you know, from that point onwards, they would ask me, so do you still talk to her? And I would show them, you know, like how often we meet, what we talk about, the resources I've recommended. But the problem is just like you asked that question, she did not know, the mother did not know how to process her own loss. Like she came back to work two weeks later and she's trying to perform like she used to. And I'm asking, how are you doing? She said, oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed. I can't keep it together. I told her, you're not supposed to keep it together. You just lost your daughter. In fact, I told her, you're not supposed to be here right now. She would be afraid to ask her boss if she can take the day off or, you know, the afternoon off. But, you know, you continue to meet with that person and then God will just provide the opportunity. Like, for example, you know, she asked me, did you see a grief counselor? I told her, no, that's not a requirement, but I've used resources to give me the blueprint on how to deal with it. So she assumed that unless you see a grief counselor, you know, there's no hope for you. Not true. Then I told her, if you want to see a grief counselor, you want to see someone who's Christian and someone who's been through it. Because she went and met with this grief counselor and she was just giving her like theory. And she said, we just did not see eye to eye. So it only took her, you know, a couple of tries to see that. And then she came back to me and said, oh, you are right. And then she meets with this counselor who lost a daughter. And she said, it's almost like he was telling her her story. Yeah, so it's, 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 it's an art that you learn by walking through it, you know. It's not something like you can see from far away and just get a good idea. I have a second question. With saying that we can't put a timetable on grief, 
is there a place where it becomes pathological, though? Yes. Okay, so how do you discern that? So how do you discern uh, as far as your grieving process is healthy versus unhealthy? Okay, so here are the ways you know you are stuck and you are now moving forward. So one would be when you start isolating yourself from everyone. So like I said, you know, grief is something you need to integrate into your life. But someone who chooses not to face it or go through it, one way you can tell is they'll isolate themselves. You know, they don't have people that they let into their lives. Um, they are not vulnerable, transparent, open with anyone. But because it's gonna try to find a way to come out, the way they deal with it is they'll turn to substance. So if you see someone turning into turning to drugs or alcohol or um, gambling or um, just not you know walking the journey with someone, that's one sign. And another one would be the inability to um, open up. So um, I remember when I chose to face this journey head on, I had to make a decision to open up from day one. So I remember right after I came back from the funeral, I met with Glenn and I told him, okay, I'm going to need you for the next few years. Can we meet every week? I remember like he was so uncomfortable. He even said to me, um, Bamni, I think this is above my pay grade. Can you go see a grief counselor? I told him, no, be quiet. That's, that's not what I want you to be. All I want is for you to listen. Can you do that? He said, yes, I would love to. So we started doing that. And I remember most of the time what I would do is I would just tell him what I'm going through. Like I would ask him the hardest questions that I'm dealing with, theological questions. And every time you'd say to me, oh, Bamni, I don't know. That hasn't been revealed. And I was comfortable hearing that I don't know. See, most of the time we want to fix the person or we want to try to answer their questions. But he would say to me, I don't know. And uh, there are times where I would meet with him and that's the last thing I want to talk about because it's been riding me all week long. And so what do we do? We sit, we sit in silence for half an hour. And then I would say, okay, it was good to see you. And then I would leave. Other times we would get together, just talk about some memories, cry, and then leave. Other times we would spend an hour, an hour and a half talking about what I've been struggling with. And um, so because I chose to do that with him and key people in my lives, everyone knew where I was in my life as far as my journey. No one had to guess. But when you choose to keep it to yourself, one, you're not going to know where you're at because you're going to have blind spots. And then two, it becomes the norm. The, un the abnormal becomes the norm for you. And then all of a sudden, when you see someone opening up about their journey, it's going to make you so uncomfortable. You're not going to want to talk about yours. And that's exactly where you don't want to be. And then the other thing is grief is a journey. It's not a final destination. It's not a permanent place. And the only way out of it is through it. So you have to 
choose to go through that passage. It's like David said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Walk. That's the key word. You walk through it. And the way you get to the top of the mountain is by going through the valley first. It's like that analogy you used uh, when we talked. That was beautiful. Okay. Yes. Yes. So how do you how do you process your own loss without self-condemnation? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, in my journey, um, as I was trying to process the loss, one thing I've discovered is it intensifies other losses in your life. So, and then another thing you learn is that you cannot grieve losses as a unit. So you're going to have to take it apart and grieve each loss one at a time. So, uh, like for example, you know, when I uh, was grieving um, her loss, my wife's uh, passing, another thing I've, I came to realize that there were certain things she wanted to do with me that I said, oh, can we do it some other time? And then never got a chance to do it. So as I was processing it, I would take time to say, okay, here's something that I'm really feeling bad about. That's natural, by the way, you know, because what comes with grief is regret and, and um, being disappointed with yourself. That's why I was showing... Um, let me go back to yeah because this really really helps yes so so what you are saying you know so when you look at the the tangled ball you know it's like a rubber band you really can't take it apart right so you're gonna have to do it one at a time so and then i'll just bring it to god and i would say okay god here's one part of the loss that i'm really having a hard time forgiving myself or letting go and and I would spend time with him and he would show me that, you know, he's able to forgive me that. That makes it easier for me to forgive myself. And then the next thing is to learn from it and do something about it, you know. That's, that's how you're going to experience restoration. But yes, it's natural to feel like you're a letdown or, you know, you are the cause of certain losses. And But being able to bring it up to God, I think that's the first step. And then when you see how much he has forgiven us, makes it easier to forgive yourself. And then um, and then the way you respond to it going forward is really going to help with seeing it in a new light. Hope that helps. Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, any other questions? I mean, if you guys have more questions, we can meet 101. If not, do you mind uh, closing in prayer? Yes, Father, thank you so much for my friend Benny uh, for his gift and being able to uh, not only synthesize your word uh, for himself, but also for other people. Thank you, Lord, for his presence in our lives as we process through grief, uh, whatever, whatever uh, season that uh, we're experiencing that in. Um, and uh, we just pray that the rest of the time um, this morning, too, would be used well by Benny. Uh, to, to help other people who might be able to, uh, to learn a couple things from this. So thank you, Lord. Uh, we love you so much. Your name, thank you. Thanks, guys.